Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. Today, we're trying something a little different with a full-on interview of someone I really admire. Writer, podcaster, and media critic Sarah Marshall. Sarah is the co host and creator of two excellent podcasts, You're Wrong About, which focuses on clarifying our collective memory and how we define ourselves by popular narrative and myth, and You Are Good, which looks at how particular movies influence our feelings and worldview. Sarah and I talk about our fear of strangers, why having a flattering headshot is crucial if you are ever abducted by a serial killer, the allure of reality TV, the connection between satanic panic and QAnon, magical thinking, and the idea of having a soulmate, acknowledging personal change, and a lot more. If you like this episode and want to hear more standalone interviews, please reach out and let us know. Leave us a review or go to our website at unqualified.com. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. You are a brilliant podcaster and writer, and I can't thank you enough for joining me. So you have two podcasts for our listeners who don't know. The first one called You're Wrong About gives context to sort of simplistic societal mythical narrative. I love this. Yeah, it's societal mythical. I grew up in a household that really liked Joseph Campbell, whose work has since been questioned and complicated in really important and fruitful ways, but who at the time was like the it scholar who informed George Lucas when he was making Star Wars and kind of going around and exploring mythology. And that's what we do with tabloids from the 90s. The first episode that I listened to and what got me hooked was your examination of the McDonald's coffee lawsuit. Oh, cool. Which was absolutely fascinating. And your range from the idea of like Ted Bundy being romanticized, which goes into sort of the larger thematic idea that I think you're interested in with a satanic panic, to your last one was Ronald Reagan and the welfare queen idea. They're all fascinating, and I'm really grateful for the work and context you provide. But I did want to ask you, with what I guess is being called the slap heard around the U.S., <laughs> will Will Smith be viewed as a romantic? Gosh, I mean, I'm really torn on this. I wish I had a better answer because I feel like on the one hand, it's so much easier to see what happened and to access the primary media in a way that it wasn't in a lot of the stories that I spent a lot of time thinking and talking about. And I think one of the ingredients for a big media event is like a televised moment or a moment somehow caught on film that people can then see and discuss 
But what happens with that is that people see different things. So even if you can go back and consult the footage over and over and do instant replay and slow-mo and everything, you can still come in with all of your pre-existing ideas about Will Smith or about Black men, which a lot of America is going to do. I kept thinking, what other celebrity would cause these sort of complicated emotions in me? Because my immediate reaction was like, not that it's romantic, but it felt like I immediately thought about Ted Cruz. Mm. <laughs> and then I thought, if this were any other celebrity, I mean, my gut reaction would be like, what a fucking asshole. Yeah. And I don't know any of these people. So I think you can't remove our, you know, hero worship of Will mm -hmm. Smith. I think the celebrity perspective how the public views celebrity has become really complicated with social media. Yeah. Can you tell us about the premise of your podcast, You Are Good? <laughs> it might be more of a vibe than a premise. We call it a feelings podcast about movies. And it's funny because it started off being called Why Our Dads. Our first episode was about Jaws, which is, I think, one of the dadliest movies there is. I once did brackets for this and the winner was Field of Dreams, which I don't think is definitive, but like it has to be up there. Oh my God, this is great. It's like baseball, ghosts, corn. <laughs> So yeah, the show started off being called Wire Dads because I founded it with my friend Alex Steed, who we have been friends since we met on Tumblr in 2010. And one of the things we instantly bonded about is that we both grew up with cranky old dads who we were like the last of many kids for. And we kind of were unpacking our dad baggage and then invited people to, they didn't have to unpack dad baggage to be on the show because that would make it a little bit scary, but we tried to talk about movies where dads were some kind of a theme. And then after about a year, we were like apparently sufficiently therapized by that. And we changed the premise to just having people on to talk about movies that were important to them, that helped them explain their feelings or their worldview. Basically having conversations connecting over movies in the way that I think movies are important, partly for their ability to let us do. Forgive me if I didn't see it, but I don't think I did. I would really love an episode about love, actually. Yeah, we haven't done one yet. That movie made me so angry. And then later, being prepared for that emotion, I saw it again. Of course, I was crying and I was hating myself for getting sucked right into what they wanted me to get sucked into. But I would really love to hear sort of a dissection because I'm not quite sure I put my finger on why that created such mm. a knee-jerk reaction in me. Early, I concluded that maybe it was the thinning of storylines, mm -hmm. that you just had too much going on, so you couldn't really associate fully with, I don't know, the female protagonist. Yeah, it's such a blur of similar couples and also a lot of couples who don't know each other for most of the movie. It's a lot of sleepless and seattling. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so that's just on my wish list, Sarah. Will you elaborate a little bit on the idea of dads in Hollywood and sort of the conclusions you guys have drawn. Yeah, it was really interesting to go into movies looking for positive male or masculine identified characters who offered nurture and who were kind of like positive dad figures and then talking about the different forms of dad-based trauma that we can see being explored in movies. I think like one of the criticisms that people rightfully have of Hollywood is that most of the movies that seem to come out of it are about the feelings of white men. And 
I think that what's true there is that we need movies about the feelings of everybody. But like, boy, if the white men are making movies about their feelings and how their dads never loved them over and over again, that's really a big clue (laughs) that's kind of useful and helpful. I mean, one example that comes to mind is that we talked about Terminator 2 Judgment Day and how specifically there's this voiceover in it where Sarah Connor is watching John Connor with the Terminator who has is, you know, upgraded to be nice now and to protect him. She basically says, I'm paraphrasing, but she's like, in a world of crappy guys and crappy stepdads, the Terminator really was the best option. (laughs) (laughs) And that's like just very deeply true. Just that's how any single mom might feel. And like, wow, what a revealing film. Are you still writing Satanic Panic? It's in process, but in that way where when there's a pandemic and you forget how to write and you blame the pandemic. And it's probably partly true. It still feels like all the research that I do about anything else, I still see through the lens of how does this connect to the Satanic Panic? How is this like or unlike the Satanic Panic? So the satanic panic, at this point, I would say that it never really ended, but it does have periods of dormancy like Stephen King's It. But we first began to see it in the early 80s when after the publication of a book called Michelle Remembers, in which a Canadian woman underwent repressed memory recovery therapy, which was something that was being practiced in a very freewheeling and confident way by a lot of therapists at the time, including her therapist and later husband, Lawrence Pazder. Was Michelle Remembers a huge bestseller? It was a pretty sturdy bestseller. It wasn't a Jaws-level bestseller. And then I think below that, there's like books that are really big at the time and that no one is really talking about 10 years later, unless in this case it's in a clinical capacity. I mean, the issue with Michelle Remembers really was, ironically... (laughs) It was published by the editor who cultivated Jaws and worked with the author and really helped craft the book to be, according to him, optimally successful. So he knew he was crafting a bestseller and he was trying to launch a publishing company and so needed Michelle Remembers to be a bestseller. And you can certainly feel that bestsellerizing hand working there. But the problem was that it was used as a training guide for social workers and law enforcement in the United States. And that was a problem because the therapy that Michelle and her therapist used basically involved her going to a very suggestive state. They never use the term hypnosis, but it seems based on context clues that that could have been happening. And it certainly was in a lot of other repressed memory therapy of the time and put together basically a narrative where they figured out using what she said in these sessions that she had been given to a satanic cult by her mother when she was a child and had been tortured by them over a long period of time. And just in a basic sort of mathematical time frame sense, she wasn't missing school. None of the events she describes could have happened based on the time frame that existed or the things she described happening to her body. And it seems really like these were kind of dream visions that explained maybe her psychological pain and her relationship with her mother. So this was published as a nonfiction book. Nonfiction books aren't, as a routine matter, fact-checked in the United States, but it was treated as 
100% certifiable fact. So again, social workers and law enforcement trained with it and then started questioning very young children in very leading fashions based on their training with this book and based on the assumption that there was actually a ton of satanic cults all over North America and they were making it their business to torture young children for some reason. God, it feels like there's such a correlation to QAnon here. Exactly. It feels like QAnon just is this with just, it went and took a little nap. And, you know, the context for this is so vast, but one of the themes here is that women in this period are returning to the workplace after having children in a way that is very threatening to a lot of men, a lot of Christians and fundamentalist ideologies and conservative political factions in the country at the time. And so it just kind of culturally makes sense. I'm not saying anyone launched a conspiracy to terrify women into not working. I just think that when we're already afraid of a woman working, the idea that Satan is involved maybe kind of makes sense to people. But this idea that daycare is where the satanic panic was born. This was the first place where this was supposed to be happening. And the idea was that all these daycares had been infiltrated by powerful Satanists who apparently wanted to do backbreaking work and be paid almost nothing for it as part of their agenda as Satanists. And all of this had the effect of making it psychologically harder for women to work. The first case at McMartin Preschool, where young children were questioned very leadingly based on a extremely vague initial complaint from a mother who later turned out to have a lot of mental health issues that were affecting her ability to make reasonable assumptions about what was going on with her son at his daycare. After that case popped up and it was publicized the way that it was, it just started showing up all over the country. I used to compare it to an epidemic. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The idea that we, as a society, are looking for the conspiracy to a degree where it feels like it's mythological, nothing rational. And I mean, taking QAnon, for example, the idea of puzzle solving on this harmful level, the idea that we have this desire to mistrust, mm -hmm. it's a little bit sad. It is. And I mean, one of the episodes we did on You're Wrong About that I feel like people bring up more than others and that means a lot to me to have spread the real story about is the episode about Kitty Genovese, who, as the legend had it, the woman who was stabbed to death as 37 of her neighbors all watched and did nothing. And the real story is so much more complicated. You know, it has to do with the fact that A, that 911 didn't exist yet and was created partly in response to this specific crime. 
be that the police in New York were so corrupt and abusive that often, even if you tried to call them as some of her neighbors did, they wouldn't respond or they would scare you enough that you wouldn't want to proceed with the matter or even try talking to them. So this happened in the middle of the night. There weren't street lamps in the area. And a lot of people saw a little bit of something or heard something, but almost nobody got a full view of anything. But one of the moments that people did see happen in front of a bar, and so the assumption that people made was that because a man was attacking a woman outside of a bar, it was a domestic altercation and therefore not the police's business or her neighbor's business. So there's tragedy in that. But again, that's not like people are innately awful. It's like we are socializing people to ignore a woman being assaulted because we have a culture where that's the right of the man she's in a relationship with. And that's on us. But that means that we can be better. And I think that, yeah, the QAnon myth, this myth, these myths where like we are doomed to be awful to each other, I think are maybe more seductive in times of general despair. I don't know, but this is the time when they're most destructive too. And I think people find like the direct correlation between religion, and I'm talking specifically about Christianity, Mm -hmm. the idea that one sense of morality is directly linked to religion. And therefore, if you have other beliefs, whatever, you cannot be a fundamentally moral person. Yeah, I mean, I think with the satanic panic and with QAnon, which I think is the satanic panic's large adult son, I think there's often an element of projection. And I mean, something you see in the satanic panic is Christian churches making allegations about a large hierarchy that is sheltering and hiding and perpetuating abuse. And what we know is that that can happen inside of any religious hierarchy and that that happens inside of Christian hierarchies and evangelical and fundamentalist hierarchies in America. And that one of the best ways to abuse someone and to abuse their faith is to tell them that they're part of something good and that the trauma they're experiencing is going to be worth it because they are bringing Jesus to people or something. And I think the satanic panic maybe allows that to hide in plain sight because it tells us people whose lives are taken over by a cult are seduced by being told they're going to be really evil and they're going to do evil, evil things. So that can't be happening to me because I'm being told I'm doing good things. So there you go. Do you think that links into your thoughts on true crime and the fascination From my naive and uneducated perspective, it seems to be a fascination with women. Well, totally. Husbands and boyfriends are always like, what is up with this? I have my own vague idea, but I'd love to hear yours. Yeah. Maybe I should tell you also that I'm having like an out-of-body experience right now in a good way, in a great way, where I was like, hadn't gotten into any MFA programs except in my hometown. And I was like, oh, I was supposed to leave Portland at some point. And then I became very emotionally attached to the house bunny. You did? Yes. And I decided that the moral of the house bunny was grow where you're planted. (laughs) Oh, my God. I love that. (laughs) And then I went to school in my hometown, which I was hoping to leave and be a different person. But I was like, fine, I'll be the same person. And then I did all this work for the past however many years it's been. And now here we are. And you're telling me about my herb. And I'm like, I know I was inspired to do my herb by the house bunny. So yeah. But- that is so <laughs> sweet to hear. My stepdaughter just got into college's 
she worked her ass off and she's really smart, but she did have some early rejections. Mm -hmm. Rejection as an actor, you face it all the time and the idea of comparison and it can really mess you up if you examine it too hard. But did you grow up in Portland or were you going to school there? Yeah, I grew up right outside Portland and went away to college for a while. Where did you go to school? I went to Bennington for a while. So I did a little bit of acting there. And then I haven't done that since, but I always felt like that really opened me up in some kind of crucial way. I went away to college initially. It was too much. I wasn't grown up enough to be, I think, in an unstructured environment full of artists. And so I came back and lived with my parents for the rest of college and went to Portland State, where I then did grad school and then taught for a while. It was like I was one of those characters on Glee or something where they graduate and then they're a teacher because they don't know what else to do with them. (laughs) But I was thinking about, you know, just giving myself a hard time for that randomly. And then I think yesterday I was like, you know what, what if what you really wanted, weirdly enough, was like time to have a life where you didn't have to be social because you didn't really know how to do that yet. And you could read everything you wanted and watch every movie you wanted and do that instead of having the college experience, which I had for the first two years. And then it was too much. I lay in the snow drunk after too many parties. You just can't do that too many times. (laughs) Totally. (laughs) So I think for me, both writing and reading have been kind of my first way of trying to explore who people are and to try and understand what it feels like to be them. And so I think it all comes back to that. And so with true crime, I mean, this has been a fascination that I've had, I'm sure since at least tweendom, because I was watching a lot of cable at the time and it was the late 90s. And so there was just a ton of true crime programming on. And I remember, as I think a lot of teen girls also do reading Anne Rule, you have like your Goosebumps kids and your Anne Rule kids probably. And I mean, something I've thought for a long time is that it's one of the ways that women try and figure out the unspoken laws that dictate their safety in America and who they are allowed to be and still be cared about and looked for. And this came up for me last night because I was watching The Inventor, the documentary about Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes. And I was like, I wonder if the story was as huge as it was because there was so much footage of her. There's so much good footage of the clowns of this company, like jumping around in their bounce houses And I remember as a teenager, I was like, if I'm abducted or murdered, I don't even know if people are going to be that invested in it because there are no good pictures of me. I was like truly concerned about the fact that I found myself to be very unphotogenic. And I was like, you just need at least one good headshot to have like a highly publicized disappearance. You just do. And I'm not going to cut it. And I'm not an A student. So there you go. And it felt like getting into college. (laughs) (laughs) right the idea though it's a little bit twofold one do we find comfort in the fear that's been instilled in us as Mm -hmm. a young girl from a very early age I have a nine-year-old boy and Mm -hmm. I know sadly I would have instilled more fear if I had a nine-year-old girl you know yeah and why did my mom feel the need to tell me the story of Kitty Genovese when I was 12 as if I was like on the verge of moving to New York City my mom gave me a book called The Gift of Fear Mm. which the basic idea is you need to trust your gut if the person that's walking towards you makes you feel uneasy at all cross the street it was both good and bad for me 
also, I think, entwined in sort of the comfort that we get knowing that our fear could be actualized and having that confirmed over and over and over again is just an interesting human quality. I think the other idea is, do you remember the case of Gabby? Petito. Yes, Gabby Petito. Like that was obviously a huge news story and a tragedy, just what becomes emblematic. And I think there's also the idea of like, man, her life seemed so perfect without struggle, which is why I think both racism and the equation between wealth and preciousness. And I think in our examination of comfort from randomness sometimes, Mm. Like, I think the random stories are the ones that tend to get lumped into, like, the idea of Ted Bundy. Yeah. Like, things just can't be random. Yeah. And so I've written about Ted Bundy, and I feel like he certainly is treated in our culture still as the ur-serial killer. His lawyer, Polly Nelson, called him to serial killers what Kleenex is to tissues. He's the brand name that stands in for all others. But I remember this also is part of my personal mythology because my mom gave me The Stranger Beside Me when I was 15 or 16. And I knew her to have extreme free-floating anxiety about something terrible happening to me at any moment, which I think a lot of moms do. Not all, but quite a number. Mm -hmm. And it's a scary world. And I think that there's so much going on. Just to try and name some layers, I feel like You know, you read these Facebook posts that go viral that I think are kind of in the gift of fear worldview where it's like, I saw a black man with a Bluetooth headset at Walmart and he was in the same aisle as me in three different aisles. So he was going to traffic me. And it's like, no, he was not going to traffic you. And that kind of story, I feel like, is a way for white women, sometimes of the genus Karen, if you will, to reassure themselves that they are the only potential victims in any store or scenario that they're in. So that's in there. And then I think there's the fact that women in America live in a world where the harm often comes from inside the house, from the man that you live with or that you married. And so projecting the harm onto some random stranger in the night makes it comforting to ignore the scary stuff closer to you because the scarier thing is far away and the scary man you're with will protect you against the theoretical scary man, which I think is one of the ways that patriarchy helps protect itself. And then there's also the fact that there just are these scary men out there sometimes. That's the thing too. Like I feel like I've done a lot of critical examining of true crime and thinking about it and kind of all the complicated things that it's doing and the ways that it's problematic. And all of that's very important to me and I could talk about it all day long. But also I don't want to discount the fact that like Sometimes a scary guy in the night does come for you, like, just because you're a woman. And that's true, too. And, like, that's just a scary truth to grow up knowing. And your fear of it can be exaggerated, but, like, it's not entirely a lie. No, you're right. When you were growing up, what were formative movies and television shows? Mm. Okay, I'm just going to name the first five things I can think of. This is fun. I really loved Rocco's Modern Life. On Nickelodeon. I feel like that had kind of an absurdist quality to it. Kids in the Hall was very big for me as a tween. What else? I loved Beauty and the Beast. And I feel like that, you know, helps train me and a lot of other kids to love musicals. Clarissa explains it all. There's a lot of Nickelodeon stuff in here. Oh, and Bill Nye the Science Guy was a huge one. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Did you ever go through an angry stage? Yeah, I think probably eighth and ninth grade, I was my most 
which seems like a common choice of timing. I was just like the most prickly, very insecure spikes everywhere. I think it is an age where like adults are starting to reveal themselves. Mm. You're starting to like figure out the clues that you've been missing yeah. about just sort of the general narratives that we tell our children. You're starting to get guys driving by you and like turning around at like mm-hmm. your newly formed body. Yeah. But I channeled it into gender issues. Mm-hmm. I was very mad I was born a girl for a long time. Mm-hmm. That was where I was like, yep, injustice. Yeah, it's a tough one to swallow. I think my main problem was that I just felt like I was never going to be able to find friends. And so I obviously created a mythology where I was like smarter than everyone else. So unfortunately, I identify in that way with a lot of guys who went on to found very dangerous startups and stuff like that. (laughs) Really? Yeah. And then I think that the antidote turned out to just be friends, you know, like finding friends. And I feel like the antidote to a lot of these problems in teenagerhood is time and just like loving friendship. Something to hold on to that shows you kind of how you can feel in a relationship. And Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You know how they might be worth the work. I went to University of Washington, which has a huge Greek system. Mm. And I would go to fraternity parties because I looked really young. I started college when I was 17, but I also looked like I was 14, maybe. Mm-hmm. Like it was a real Doogie Hauser without <laughs> the drive situation. And I would tell guys that I was 15. Hmm. It was like my whole inside confirmation. You invented promising young woman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know why I wanted people to prove me. I mean, it seems like one of the ways that you can actually in real time see a person show you who they are and a guy show you who they are. College was kind of a miserable time for me. Mm. I think I went to a school that was a little too big. It was a little too close. Mm -hmm. But I remember late sophomore year, I was in a smaller class. I can't remember what class it was, but these sorority girls invited me to a lunch that was going to be the following week. And I was really surprised and I was really flattered. Mm -hmm. I was really excited. And then when the day came, whenever they didn't say anything to me, none of the girls, like, and I kind of even dressed a little bit differently because normally I wore really high black boots and kind of smelly vintage clothes. And I would stomp around the campus. 
And I remember not knowing what to do. Do I go up to them and ask them if the lunch is still on? Hmm. But I just kept quiet because it was clear that something had shifted Hmm. and they changed their mind and I was not to be at the luncheon. (laughs) Yeah. God, that's a hard story. I feel like I want there to be more awareness of the idea that you don't have to have a great time at college either. Because I feel like college is supposed to be part of the way it's supposed to earn how much it absurdly costs is that if you were miserable in high school, you're going to have a great time in college. And it's like, or you could have like a not great time in college. You know, that's possible too. And it's fine. Because I think if you have this expectation that everything's going to click at a certain point. Oh, it's the same thing with Hollywood. If you have gotten a little bit of a career or if you have a hit movie, there's a feeling of like, oh, okay, of insurance that is very false. Mm-hmm. And in an odd way, that's of comfort to me. The idea that there's no finish line. Yeah. Well, because then the goal has to be the work, which I think is nice because I feel like I don't know. One of the things I want to do in the future is more live event type stuff and to try and do a live version of You're Wrong About because just the experiences that I've been able to have in the past few years have just been that like when you can say something off the cuff and then like hear a laugh come back to you from in front of you. It'll be a whole different experience, right? Yeah. And that's the goal, you know, like not sort of hitting a certain benchmark, but just like, oh, I'm going to do that today, hopefully, if things go well. Yeah. No, it's true. Watching the relief on my stepdaughter's face and sense of being after she got accepted really did make me reflect because the idea of getting into college has been incredibly stressful for her since she was like 12. Yeah. And to go to her school and to listen that it's the only thing everyone, teachers, coaches, everyone is talking about is like, what school did you get into? And I think that it occurred to me like, They don't know that it kind of doesn't matter. But the bigger questions are going to be much harder to grapple with, which is like, what am I passionate about? How do I make a living? Right. (laughs) And the ingenuity that that requires. Yeah. Maybe because we need more ceremonies and rites of passage in our culture. College just certainly when I was growing up. Yeah, I probably started thinking about it when I was 12. And it felt like this extremely important component in like who you are going to be for the rest of your life. It's complicated, right? Because every door that you open changes things. We all learned that from that movie where Gwyneth Paltrow does or doesn't get together with John Hanna. Wait, I don't remember that movie. What? Sliding Doors. Sliding Doors. It should be titled Long Hair, Short Hair. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. Yeah. But I feel like maybe a better way to think about it is like, what do I want to study? What does the school have to offer me? And what do I want the next four years of my life to be like? Or the next one year of my life? Because I could change my mind. Because, you know, I went to two very different schools. I got different things out of both of them. They both weren't really quite right for me in different ways. And then ultimately that time ended. And then, you know... You do other stuff. I mean, my God, if college is going to be so expensive, we should be thinking about it in terms of what it offers the student. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. So, Sarah, will you tell us about a heartbreak? Yeah, I immediately want to organize it into two main kinds of heartbreak. The one where your feelings are returned and you're having the heartbreak of unreturned feelings. Or the heartbreak of, we both gave this our all, but here we are and it's not going to work and we have to walk away. And 
It's funny. I feel like the my feelings are unreturned heartbreak feels more acute in the moment. It feels like heartbreak classic. But what's harder and what ultimately I feel like has at different times become something good overall is the giving it all and walking away heartbreak because that at times has felt like you experience a relationship at some point, maybe you outgrow it, maybe you both outgrow it, maybe just you're being pulled apart and then stepping outside of it feels like a lobster popping out of a shell, which I encourage everyone to search for a video of because it's very fun to watch. (laughs) And you feel this sense of like, However much pain there is feels like that was pain that you understood you had to experience in order to keep growing. It would be like mourning, I suppose, a death and the frustration, I think, of inexplicable incompatibility. Mm. I could see how there's something very profound about that experience of both party members trying to make a bad thing work. Yeah, And also, I think maybe there's something very complicated about the fact that some relationships are maybe not meant because that implies that somebody is in charge of all this. But some relationships, I think, can last decades and some can last a few years. And some, I think, just have an actual shelf life of, you know, a few months or a year. And I think there's something painful about acknowledging the fact that we are always changing, that we are saying goodbye to versions of ourselves. And as we change you know, relationships that made sense recently no longer do. There's just something hard about accepting the change, not just in your relationships, but in yourself. Mm -hmm. How old were you when you first felt like you were in love? Mm, 18. I was like third grade. I (laughs) I have like a whole diary just with different versions of I Love Ryan Gervon. I definitely had that, but it was like very serious about language, I guess. I was like, I'll know. I will know. And I knew it had something to do with the thing that happens in cartoons where like, you know, the mouths go together for the kiss and then there's kind of this jigsaw effect. I was like, if that's not happening, then it's not at 100%. (laughs) When you were um, 18, were you in college? Mm -hmm. And was it a long relationship or was it a relationship? It wasn't. It was a first love in a my feelings are not returned capacity. And that's so interesting to me, too. I feel like there's this passage in Heartburn that I really love that's about the idea that your therapist will tell you that you chose the wrong person because you understood you were tragically destined to not work out. And the rebuttal is like, that's not a great observation. You're tragically destined to not work out with everybody. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we talked to a lot of our listeners And I think I said something not so long ago that I didn't exactly mean. I meant a sort of a more complicated idea, but it came out maybe as a little bit cruel, which was I was really questioning what we think of when we say soulmate. Yeah. It kind of goes back to the idea of seeking comfort in like a lack of coincidence or something. Right. And that freaks me out, I got to say, because I know that when I am like most infatuated with somebody, I do a ton of magical thinking, you know, really summed up, I think, by Bridget Fonda's character in Singles, where she like wads up a paper towel and she throws it in the trash. And she's like, if I make this basket, that means I should call him. And then she misses. And she's like, was no basket call him? I'll just call him. But just like that thing that I think a lot of brains do. And then I often feel like the way my brain functions in a stage of infatuation is like, 
Not in even the same neighborhood, but the same quadrant as QAnon thinking, you know, where it's just like destiny, someone steering this thing, you know, it's all going to come together, which I feel like weirdly is one of the big themes in Sex and the City is like the push and pull between like, are our lives all happening the way they are for a reason? Or is this just a bunch of stuff like that comes up a lot on that show? (laughs) I think you guys did a podcast about it, but I haven't listened to it yet. Will you tell us about the thoughts on and just like that. Yeah. Oh my God. I would love it. Okay. Yes. So we did two bonus episodes that are free to everybody on our Patreon page for You Are Good on and just like that, which I think was just like what America needed. Like what did we have to do in January of 2022 except complain about Che Diaz? You know, nothing. But (laughs) I'm very pro and I think that there's to me just something that makes me really happy about these characters who I grew up watching and feel very attached to, like awkwardly stumbling into the present day. And I think it's also like, I have friends who are in their mid to late 50s and are like very hip and cool and very savvier than I am about a lot of social issues and stuff. So like, it's funny to me that they're all like, I'm 55, I don't know what I'm doing. And it's like, 55 is the new 35, Carrie, you're still 35. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I guess I love that we get to continue a relationship with characters. And there's so many moments in it where it's like watching a horror movie where you have to watch it between your fingers, where it's just like so cringy. But I love that. I love to feel something in 2022. That's what I think. (laughs) Do you watch any reality television? Oh, I watch Married at First Sight, but I'm not up to date on it, unfortunately. But yeah, I think that show is incredible. If you like that show. You have to watch Before the 90 Days, 90 Day Fiance. Mm -hmm. It's really good. Hmm. There's a lot of simplistic judgment passing that's very much controlled by the producers, which I love it. I also watch The Bachelor, which I find just fascinating. I would reveal my own sort of guilty pleasure aspect by saying that it's really nice to escape the realm that I participate in. Right. I just haven't quite put my finger on why that realm is so popular, why I enjoy it so much, and how certain shows have truly brilliant producer manipulation and editing Mm -hmm. behind it. Yeah, I was just thinking, it's funny how we've always had reality TV in the form of game shows, right? Because we would have like, what's my line or something in the 50s. And that was also just an excuse to watch people talk to each other. And we've always had talk shows and these things where like, we understand that people left to interact with no guidance at all is often pretty boring. And so we've always known in TV that like the two ways you can make TV are like, give them a script, make them play a bunch of games. (laughs) Yeah. So like, I have never watched The Bachelor or The Bachelorette because my understanding is that the episodes are all like four hours long and I just, I'm tired. But I've watched YouTubers break down various seasons of these shows because I love to consume media about media. And it seems like there's a lot of debate over like the purity of people's intent as well, where it's like you're here for the wrong reasons. Yes. And this last season, they have the fantasy suites mm-hmm. and the guy, the bachelor, Clayton. Clayton is such a bachelor name. <laughs> Clayton was such a bachelor. <laughs> They're interchangeable mostly. Mm-hmm. So Clayton, he sleeps with two of them. That becomes the whole big story, the defining mm 
idea behind Clayton was that he is like, I was intimate with both of you. I would think you would want to have sex with all of the people you're going to maybe marry. Honestly, whatever. Sarah, <laughs> this is the moment, though, that gave me hope. Huh. Tell me. They've never told that story before. Of huh. course, most of those people have slept with. Right. Of course. Right. No, they just all played Scrabble previously. <laughs> And they've never been confronted about it. They've never had to huh. tell their story. I'm sure that there were moments where, yeah. you know, the girls were like, hey, did you fuck him? Yeah, I fucked him. And they're like, we're mad at you or whatever, but it's brushed under the rug. It's not right. told. So it was like, oh, they like threw Clayton under the bus. They cast him. And I was thinking, oh, they've really gone backwards. Hmm. And then they threw him under the bus. So I was getting a total kick out of it. <laughs> What a fascinating show. I feel like I often think about the evening gowns. I know they wear all kinds of different clothes and they do different activities, but I feel like it's so funny to think about having to spend hours and hours chilling in an evening gown, you know, oh, just God. like mingling. You're not allowed any books, magazines, your phone. So it's like you're on a jury. Yeah. And you have to go in for what they call girl chats. Because mm -hmm. you're wondering, why are all these girls just sitting on these sofas just talking about the other girl who's on a date? Uh -huh. Like <laughs> They're like, get in there and bitch about your co-star, young yeah. lady. It endlessly fascinates me how they walk this line when the other countries, they are not nearly as popular. Hmm. So it's like, in what American way has this pumped into our bloodstream? I mean, it's funny, too, to bring true crime back, inevitably, that, like, it's such a running joke at this point, right? That, like, the husband did it. Like, you're watching any episode of any other true crime show, and in the first five minutes, you're like, husband did it. And, like, you're probably going to be right. And so, yeah, like, we live in a country where you kind of toggle between, like, husband did it on oxygen, which should be the name of a show you have, Oxygen. Why beat around the bush? <laughs> And The Bachelor, where it's like, please marry me, out-of-work 26-year-old virgin. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the circling around, also it bothered me. He truly had to do, like, an apology tour, essentially, to America. It was not a great time for him. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like he gave us something else to talk about, and that seems like a gift in this moment. Yeah. It gives me hope, I guess. Truly, though, if you were to see anything, check out Before the 90 Days. Okay. I feel like there are so many reality TV food groups now because if you were a different kind of reality show, I feel like you would want to have the actual person's home because an actual person's home is interesting. Yeah, and revealing. Yeah, like the whole thing feels so staged where it's like everyone's very symmetrically attractive and wearing evening gowns. And also this thing of like never talking about anything of substance. What if all they talked about was politics and everybody was fighting the entire time? That would be great. <laughs> but like at the end of the day, I feel like the core truth of it all is that we love to watch other people. I have a friend who always sums it up as like babies want to see other babies, which we recognize about babies, but we don't, I think, maybe recognize as much about ourselves as adults. But I think that's very sweet. And throughout history, I mean, yeah. theater has been been an incredibly curious and ancient need within us. Right. Sarah, I can't thank you enough. Is there anything that you would like to talk about in terms of stuff that you're working on or excited about? Yeah, I'm excited for everything that's happening at You're Wrong About. I think we've got some really fun episodes coming up and are trying to sort of find new angles to look at the heart of America. We have some 
episodes on the adventures of Ronald Reagan planned, which I've seen people express both excitement and dread about that. Dread in a good way, which is like, oh my God, we're going to like truly peer into the dark heart of Reagan himself. And we are, and it's going to be a fun adventure. So everyone come do that this summer. (laughs) Whoa. Yeah. Oh my God. Like the OJ Simpson series just blew my mind. Thank you. I think, Sarah, you're just brilliant. I cannot thank you enough. It's just really, really lovely to talk to you. It's so lovely to talk to you. This was such a wonderful, open-hearted conversation with you. And I feel like you have influenced me. It's always been hard to have a career as a woman where you express something authentic about yourself and also get paid for it. And I do feel like you're a role model in that way. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so very much. Yeah. What you do in terms of podcast, it must take an incredible amount of research and hard work. And every episode is fascinating. And so I just love listening to your podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much, Sarah. Bye. Bye. Bye.